listeners, welcome to the 10x Growth Strategies podcast. I'm your host, Aarti Vijay Raghavan, a product leader, an avid reader, and a book lover. In this episode, we'll be discussing the book, Think Faster, Talk Smarter by Matt Abrahams with Ms. Lakshmi Baskaran. We've all been in situations where we have to speak unexpectedly, and the frameworks in this book will help you to speak when you're put on the spot. Lakshmi Baskaran is an accomplished business leader, entrepreneur, and an angel investor with over two decades of experience in the tech industry. She's built and managed high-performing engineering teams across startups, scale-ups, and publicly listed companies across North America, Europe, Australia, and Asia. She's currently VP of Engineering at Metadata, a SaaS company that offers marketing operating systems to prominent brands and businesses worldwide. Lakshmi is passionate about coaching and mentoring business leaders and empowering women to pursue careers in technology. With the right support, she firmly believes that any woman can unleash her potential and make significant impact on the world, rising to the heights of a great leader, entrepreneur, and a board member. Let's dive in and learn from Lakshmi's thoughts and insights on speaking spontaneously. Thank you, Lakshmi, for agreeing to be on this podcast. We are really delighted to have you. Thanks, Aarti, for having me here. It's a real pleasure to be talking to you and your audience. Yeah, thank you. Let's kick off, actually. Let's hear about your globetrotting journey across the tech world, uh, you know, North America, Europe, Australia, and Asia. So let's start from there, actually. Sure. Um, so we are talking about the book, uh, Think Faster and Talk Smarter, which is about impromptu communication. And my globetrotting experience is about impromptu opportunities. Because opportunities never come planned in your career, in your professional or your personal lives. Um, so the, the opportunity here in coming up with new opportunities is learning and being aware and knowing what opportunity you want to absorb and what opportunity you want to say no to. So I was born and brought up in India. And after finishing my master's, I moved to North, Europe and North America to kick off my career. And uh, each jump from one country over to the other country was more about a triggering, an interesting career transition that led to a global movement for myself. So uh, when I was in Europe, I had a consulting gig in the US that I wanted to come in and build an enterprise-wide product for one of the Fortune 500 companies. The thought of not just building a product for an enterprise, but scaling to millions of customers really enticed me. And I was like, okay, I'm now ready to fly from Europe over to the US. And after spending six years in the US working across two Fortune 500 companies, um, I had one of my ex-bosses who invited me to come and join him in Australia to build um, a national broadband network, a product for a national broadband network. And the thought of moving all the way from the West to East initially uh, scared me a bit, mm -hmm. um, but the exciting professional opportunity and the professional and the career transition really made me believe that this is an opportunity I should say yes to. And I took on board and moved from US to Australia. And that's one of the best and most exciting transitions in my career. 
both professionally and personally as well. So when I finished seven years in Australia, then I was like, yeah, now it's time to move. And this time we decided to move from Australia to Canada. And every time I move or make a geographic shift, I paired the geographic shift along with a career shift as well. When I worked in Australia, I was working with a massive enterprise scaling products up to uh, thousands and millions of users. And when I moved to Canada, I was like, this is a perfect moment for me to learn about working in startups and scale-ups. So I was very particular that I wanted to start my career in Canada working for startups and scale-ups. And then I used a geographical shift towards a career shift as well. So I have to admit that I've been lucky that there have been opportunities that has come my way, which led me to move between continents and between countries, but leveraging them and using them for my career potential was something that I'm proud I was able to achieve as well. Okay, that's that's great, actually. And I think uh, one of the best things we, uh, one thing I observed was like, uh, you kept saying these opportunities are, were lucky, but I think you were also intentional about what you wanted to do every time, right? But even when an opportunity comes, actually thinking deeply about it and also use, utilizing it in a strategic way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that is you are hundred percent right. It is it is truly critical, Arti, as you're saying, because there are always opportunities that come your way. But the most important thing is learning what is good and what is not good. Not good doesn't mean it's not a good opportunity, but not good means that it is not aligned with how you want to progress in your career. So being aware of that and making the right decisions, as you say, is very important. Thank you. Uh, so what's the what's the main reason you uh, you chose this book for our uh, discussion today actually so and uh, thank you I, I've been following Matt Abrahams as part of my leadership journey at Stanford as well so I listened to his podcast and also I love the book so what made you choose this book in particular oh yeah um, so uh, the interesting um, anecdote uh, a personal story about me is like I come from I grew up in a country where um, English is not the native language uh, and English is not my mother tongue. So growing up, I was quite privileged to go to a school where they taught all the academic subjects in English. We call it as an English medium school, which is not very common uh, back home. Uh, So learning in a school where the subjects are taught in English, I was confident that what I learned um, in my academic subjects and what I learned in these Shakespearean novels will help me have a more confident articulation when I traveled for work outside of my home country. Little did I know that the English used in academic subjects and academic papers and Shakespearean novels is not what you use when you present to an audience in your company or when you speak to your team or even when you have an impromptu conversation with a friend or a colleague. Um, I still realize, um, I still recall the first two years of moving out of my country and being part of a team where majority of them are native English speakers. I truly struggled mostly with impromptu communication because with planned presentations, we take the time to prepare for a presentation. We take the time to think through as to what to respond to the questions. But the ones that most non-native speakers struggle with is with impromptu communication. Here is a good example that I still recall. Um, Once when a colleague of mine um, asked after the weekend, hey, Lakshmi, what did you do for the weekend? 
and I didn't do anything. I just simply went on a long drive with my friends. So what happens for a non-native speaker is in an impromptu communication, you tend to translate things from your native language to your English language. Mm -hmm. And the way I responded to that question was I met with a bunch of friends and we went in a car for a long time, which basically meant we just went for a long drive. Now I would say I met with a bunch of friends and we went for a long drive. But back then it was literally translating from what I did to my native language and then translating it to English. So that was something I was so ashamed when I actually mentioned that and I was like, oh, this is not working. I'm truly struggling with impromptu communication because English is not my native language. And I've always been looking for resources and coaches to help me learn the tools and have some techniques for impromptu communication. And I've not been super successful because not many many people talk about more um, planned communication, presentations, and uh speaking for big audiences, but there are a lot very less resources when it comes to impromptu communication. So when someone gifted me this book, I was like, yeah, this is like uh, something that I've really longed to learn for a long time. And the book really served the purpose there. Okay, that's, that's interesting, actually. And I think you also articulated what is the biggest challenge you faced with impromptu situations. Yeah. I think this translation happens for a lot of us who grew up with different languages and um, and what is native and I think over time it also shifts what is native I think for me it's like uh, one of the things I always say is if I have to give instructions it has to be in English I don't think I can give instructions <laughs> uh, in my native language actually so that makes a difference have you figured when you speak to your parents back home like you see the opposite shift my mom always says oh your tone and communication style it seems like you're more of an English native speaker, but don't forget your mother tongue is different. Yeah. So you're exactly right. I mean, over a period of time, your style and your tone shifts to the language that you're more prominently using in your day-to-day life. Yep, yep, yep. And also the context and the milieu helps actually. So it's... it's oh, the, yeah. You, and I think you've also experienced that in different continents as well. So uh, true. <laughs> So one of the things in the book I loved is actually the chapter on listening, right? So the sometimes the best way to connect is to say nothing at all. And uh, it's really challenging to have a meaningful pause. Uh, in my company, we, we have a term for meaningful pauses. So everyone understands mm-hmm. that, okay, I'm going to give this meaningful pause. Every, like using that word, everyone will be like, okay, that means we have to think and ask questions. So for you, you know, can you share anecdotes from the book or from your own experience on how do you motivate your audiences with meaningful pauses? And, uh, you know, it's very hard to actually not say anything. So how do you do oh, handle yeah. that? That's a very good question, Arti, because I love to talk. I love to talk. I love to share. Um, and I love to connect events and incidents. And it's so hard for me to sit somewhere and just keep listening. And I think this book was a really good uh, reminder for me that my listening to talk ratio is low. I should have a high listening ratio compared to a talk ratio. It's a very good and timely reminder. Um, I want to share um, something that recently happened. So during a one-on-one with, uh, recently during a one-on-one with one of my senior engineers, um, I'm going to the one-on-one as a normal check-in call to learn what he's doing, how are things moving, and how I can support and help. 
Uh, so this person comes into this one-on-one and he was thoroughly frustrated with a number of things happening in the company, happening in the team. Um, so things like, he was like, hey, we are currently spending only 30% of our total effort towards addressing a legacy code base, every engineer's nightmare. And he was like, we should spend at least 60 to 70% of our time fixing our legacy code base. And he was so frustrated about what was happening there. And the other thing he felt challenging is like some of our automation test cases are breaking for your audience who are um, tech listeners, they would know how automation test cases are truly important for the speed of delivery of a product. And he was so frustrated how there are a big chunk of these test cases that are breaking and how we should pause everything that we are doing to go back and fix them. Um, So in a normal scenario, if this book was not a timely reminder, I would have gone back and shared justification for each of his feedback or each of his frustration, saying why we cannot pause all our projects to fix automation. Uh, What we are doing now is have a team that is dedicated to automation so that we can continue to fix our tests while we are continuing to build. And similarly, how we cannot divest a lot of resources into addressing our legacy code base because we need to build in order to start, in order to share new features with our customers as well. So for each of its frustration, I would have packed a justification or a rational. But as I said, this book was a true reminder to me that what I what he needed from me there is not a rational or a justification. What he needed from me there is just active listening. Um, active listening, we all, we mostly relate that to being actively present in a situation, actively present in a communication. But this particular instance taught me that active listening is not just being actively present. It is also being able to connect to the other person. In this case, me not saying anything helped me to truly connect with my senior engineer there and be empathetic towards his frustrations. So we ended the conversation where 80% of the conversation I was just listening and I wasn't speaking or I wasn't justifying why it was what it was. And a week later, he comes back and tells me, I'm so glad you did not come back with justifications when I poured out my frustration, because now a week later, I truly realized that even though all my intentions were best placed, it is not fully aligned with the business goals and business objectives. But what I needed there is just a listening ear. And I have to say, if I didn't read this book, I probably would not have been reminded of that, though it's a very common principle that leaders should follow increase your listening ratio and reduce your talking ratio but we always need constant reminders and this book was a constant reminder and when he came back and said how he felt about me just listening but not talking reinforced the fact that listening is an important part of being a good leader or being being a very um, empathetic and impactful leader. That doesn't mean that you never talk and you just listen. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there is a time to talk and there is a time to listen. And sometimes it's you don't have to do both at the same time. You don't have to listen and talk at the same time. You could listen and then go back and reinforce or reiterate your opinions in a di- during a different time. So as you rightly said, listening is a very impactful part of leadership. And this book was a timely reminder for me on that. That's that's actually very interesting. Um, uh, in order to just uh, share a couple of uh, thoughts on that, right? Uh, what you just experienced or described is like a venting space. That person wanted a venting space, and uh, 
And as product and engineering leaders, what I have seen in a lot of us is we we are automatically tuned to go to a solution mode. So uh, what what I try it's I have had similar situations where someone has come and uh, uh, given problems and. Uh, my immediate brain in 10 seconds i'm solutioning i'm stop listening and i'm solutioning and that is not the that's not what they want so based on my own one on ones with my teens and also the feedbacks which i've given i actually pause and say like okay to myself say like okay this person doesn't want you to solution at this point or you don't need a solution immediately listen the full context and then maybe you don't even need a solution in that 45 minutes so take oh, the yeah. time to actually process it and go uh, go back and come back with you know solutions and probably by the next time they listen to you uh, or they come back uh, similar to your situation they already have processed themselves as well so i think that 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 makes a lot of difference in terms of giving the indication to your speaker that yes you're listening you're processing and you're not going to react immediately because you really want to take in what they said right yeah i think what you shared um, is a very good nugget arti and we can most of us can implement in team settings as well imagine the number of meetings we have where we have a one hour meeting we talk about the problem we talk about the opportunity and then we cram to come up with a solution and it doesn't have to be that way you can have a space to talk about the problem and then you can come back and have a space to brainstorm and explore solutions it doesn't have to be like just because you've talked about a problem your meeting will be effective only if you walk out of a meeting with a solution not the case your meeting is as effective if you can have the time to absorb the problem mull over it and then come back to a different meeting to talk about your solutions and you're right 100% right i mean being able to create that space for problem and for solutions is very effective so uh for me personally when i read the book one of the things which i stood out was like you need to structure your spontaneity so it's like um, i've heard uh, people who say that i'm a verbal processor there are some friends of mine who just talk and they process information as they talk so what what do you do in terms of how do you structure your spontaneity are are you using some of the frameworks in order to structure your spontaneity now Oh yeah. Um I wanted to start with a I'll start with this short um example or a story here that's personally happened to me. So this was like 2 years ago. Um when we were all working in offices. I was leading a very business critical project um in one of my previous roles. And I see my CEO who was passing by and we just exchanged normal greetings and then he was curious what's happening in this meeting because there were a lot of eyes into this project because it is a very critical project to deliver an impactful outcome to our customers. So the moment he asked me what's going on with the project I just started spitting out everything. what am i doing what my team is doing how am i bringing different departments and functions together to make a marketing splash and while i was saying all this and i think this is normal for most of us the thing that's going at the back of my mind is i want to impress the ceo towards what i'm doing for the business and what i'm doing for my team as a result of that when he walked away walked after our conversation in his mind there is just a mishmash of information there is no structure there is no direction on what i and my team is doing he just has like a 
mishmash of different pieces of information and I made him so hard to process that information for himself. And that is exactly what I thought when I read this book and when Matt Abrahams was sharing about the structure. If only I had the structure of how I can pack that information in a way that my CEO could easily absorb and could relay for his own self, that would have been a very successful impromptu conversation. So to the audience listening to this podcast, I would highly recommend to read the book and pay attention to the structures of the book. I think one structure that was quite useful is the ARC structure. So what Matt Abrahams is saying, and he has talked about it in some of his uh, posts, LinkedIn and LinkedIn posts as well. ARC is nothing but a very useful structure that you can adopt when you're speaking to a group of people. Um, regardless of how good of a public speaker you are, before you get onto the stage or before you start saying something in a team meeting or a company-wide meeting, the first thing that comes to your mind is anxiety. You're anxious about whether you can communicate well. And with ARC, the most important thing is A is acknowledging your anxiety. So it's most important to say, yes, it's okay to be anxious and I am anxious and it's okay to be anxious. The R in the R talks about reframing your anxiety. And I think that was a very useful technique I learned from the book. Uh, What Matt Abraham says is like, if you start reframing your anxiety to something that is excitement, if you're going and talking in a company-wide meeting about what your team is doing, you're anxious whether you can relay everything quite well so that you and your team feels proud of what you're doing. But continue to reframe that anxiety as a sense of excitement. You're excited to share to your audience about some of the successes and wins of you and your team. And once you mentally reframe anxiety as an excitement, you can actually change, see your body tone and the chemicals that react in your body to be different. And the interesting research that Matt Abraham shares is like anxiety and excitement, they incite the similar or the same chemicals in your body, which puts you on high alertness. What do you want to do when you share to a wide audience? You want to be alert about what you're sharing and what you're speaking. And being able to reframe that thinking has widely helped me in some of my recent uh, conversations with a huge audience. And... um, The C there is cooling down your body. And I didn't realize that cooling down your body increases your alertness. So now I have a small ice pack in my fridge and I bring that ice pack and put it between my palms when I actually speak to a wider audience. And it cools down my body and brings me to a high alertness. So this is like one specific framework that I started adopting right from the time I read in the book. And there are a lot of other frameworks as well. But in the interest of time, if you have more time, I'd love to bring some real world examples on how I've used the other framework. But this is one framework that has been super helpful from the time I read in the book. Wow. Okay. I never knew that a pack of uh, frozen peas can be used in order to during actually conversations. I'm not trying yeah. that. I think I'm going to try that next, actually. <laughs> yeah. uh, the the other thing, you know, personally, uh, I loved uh, I loved that tech talk on uh, population growth and economic inequality. The best thing about was using crisp visualizations. Uh, so as a product person, I'm sucker for data and also visualizing yeah. data. Uh, I think most of the time I spent with some of my PMs is on actually playing with Looker or Tableau. Uh, in order to visualize data and look at how do you present it effectively and do a data storytelling. 
so any insights from your experience on how you've seen it done very well uh and what you you know what do you do in in those kind of situations actually yes um i believe you're referring to hans rosling's ted talk where he brings some um i mean impromptu pieces over to the ted talk uh to then present to the audience and then he does a very lively um presentation before he actually goes into talking about his idea and opinion about population growth and economic inequality and that's a brilliant ted talk for whoever wants to uh learn how to not just use words but use actions to bring your audience towards your content that's a brilliant ted talk to listen to um how do i do that i think um as i said i love to talk i love to speak and uh my presentations are generally packed with content and packed with data and there is a good thing that i'm learning from the ceo of Gil, from my current ceo gilalchi and he uses this technique called um constraint based technique or we also call this choice architecture and what i mean by that is like when we actually uh prepare for our all hands in a company wide all hands each executive gets two slides to actually present for the rest of the company and in the beginning of when i started working with girl um he gave us just two choices a you only have two slides and you can only have up to three bullet points in each slide so these are the two choices that we have mm-hmm. and as someone who likes to pour a lot of things into my presentation into my talk when i first came across this it was a huge constraint for me how am i expected to say something that my and my team has done in the last 3 months or a last quarter just in two slides i felt so constrained about this choice that he shared with us but over a period of time after few months of all hands presentation i realized how that constraint and choice architecture made me to leverage those two slides and less content in the slide to create a very impactful visual presentation and when people think of visual presentation visual presentations could be as simple as if you want to share an idea or an emotion or a success story you can get some um visual presentations from google or even a simple visual presentation if you want to talk about the product that you and your engineering product and engineering team is building a screenshot from the product is good enough for a visual presentation so you don't have to do a lot to come up with really impactful presentations your presentation what it should be visually appealing and should translate that into a story that you want to tell so in all my recent all hands i constrain myself to show a picture either from a screenshot from my product or a picture that is a reflection of what i wanted to share and just pack it with one or two bullet points and what it helps is like people don't spend a lot of time reading through your uh, bullet points or reading through your slides instead they spend a lot of time to connect with you about the emotions and the ideas that you share with your teams and i think that shift has been quite an impactful shift although i started this journey with a bit of frustration about how am i expected to pack everything that happened in a month or a quarter in just two slides 
this constraint made me to like reinvent how a presentation is not just about packing information on a slide, but about sharing a story that your audience can connect to. And one thing is like everything that you share could be in a story arc. Uh, it, and product engineering and uh, finance presentations are sometimes a bit boring to the audience, right? Because only some people in the audience can reflect, connect with that. But when you put that in a story arc, Anything that is very technical, very uh, business focused uh, could be converted to a consumable message for any kind of audience, regardless of whether they connect with the topic or whether they're experts in the topic. If you put it in a storyline, that is something that everyone can easily absorb and relate to. That makes uh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think uh, one of the things uh, when I had when I've gone through a lot of these communication with impact. Uh, courses or uh, teachings on it uh, like try to analyze your uh, information and and see what is the one takeaway which your audience want which you want your audience to remember at the end of that right so just put that and just focus that it might be that you know uh, it might be that some growth number is just two percent or so that people go think about the what they can do to solve it or it might be that you achieved an extremely good result and that is what you want to show the impact. So just showing that one key takeaway is much more critical than showing all the 10 things which led to the takeaway. If someone is interested, they will come back and ask you about all the 10 things or you know, they will know all the 10 things already which led to that impact. So it's like oh yeah, thinking critically about the what is the one key takeaway is the most important thing. So... Thank you for that. Very well said, Arti. I think that's a very important point to share as well. But how do you actually, do you have, uh, so the message that you share would be the same for different types of audience. Mm -hmm. So do you find different takeaways based on the audience to whom you're sharing that message? What is your experience on that? I think you will have to, you have to tailor it to the audience. In in everything in communication, uh, what we learn from the book and also from other yeah. places, you need to understand where your audience is coming from and what is it that they want, right? So your messaging and your, your uh, information, what you're trying to support, it is not that I want to showcase this. It's not like what you just said to the CEO, right? In the back of your mind, you were always thinking about, you know, how do I sh show myself in a good light? I don't think that leaves an impact. Instead, mm -hmm. what leaves an impact is if you know, if I'm the CEO, what is the most important thing which I need to tell him so that he can use that information to make the next decision, right? So if you can help him with that, then he's going to remember that Lakshmi helped me with that information rather than, yeah. you know, rather than actually uh, having that all those 10 pieces of things and he being confused. Right. So that is what uh, one of the main things which I learned from this book and all the communication things is do not think about what you want to say, but always think about what your audience wants to hear. Right. So if you know what they are, uh, where they are coming from, what they want to hear, what they can understand, then you will tell your message to 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 fit their needs. Right. So if you're talking to an engineering yeah. audience, it might be different. If you're talking to a business people, it might be different. But the same information you can say so that they can understand what is the impact it's creating for them. How does it, how can they relate to it? That's very key. Yeah, 200%. I think uh, Matt Abraham shares that very well in this book about mediocrity when it comes to impromptu communication. 
because whenever we meet our boss or meet our CEO in a very impromptu setting, we wanted to capture that uh, moment. We wanted to, as you rightly said, you wanted to show your light on that specific moment, right? But impromptu communication is not about the best or the worst. It's about like what you can do in order to convey the information so that the listener gets to capture that information. Yeah. And Matt Abraham says, the moment you start thinking about not not delivering the best form of communication, the moment you accept that mediocrity is acceptable and okay in an impromptu communication, your communication strengthens, your anxiety reduces, and you're now thinking more about the content and how you can pack the content rather than throwing the best light out of the communication. And that's a very good takeaway as well, like being able to acknowledge and accept mediocrity in a communication or more importantly, in an impromptu communication. Yep, very true. So lastly, actually, I wanted to understand, you know, the second half of the books, there is really good specific structures on how you can structure your communication, right? So uh, there is obviously a lot of things. I think he shows something like seven to 10 uh, uh, structures or strategies for remembering. So what is your strategy for remembering some of them? Like, you know, how are you, uh, you going on that journey? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I mean, you mentioned during your introduction that you are an avid reader yourself. So I'm assuming you consume in the order of tens of hundreds of books every year. And as a reader my, myself too, one of the biggest challenges I experience is I read a lot, but unless you put them into action, it is very hard to recall and bring what the best practices that you read to the moment where you want to execute. And uh, recently, I think it's been a couple of years, I've started using an app called Readwise. I highly recommend this app and I'm sure there are other apps that solve the same problem. And the way what Readwise does is like, when I read a book digitally, I always highlight some of the important points on my in my digital book. And say, for example, I'm reading an article online or I'm storing something in pocket for a future read. I always highlight things that are important that I can resonate with and I wanted to adopt. And the biggest challenge until I started using Readwise is like I don't recall what to adopt when I'm put in a situation. So with Readwise, what you could do is you could import all your highlights from different sources. There are a number of sources, iBooks, uh, your Amazon Kindle, your blogs, your pocket. There are different sources. So whatever the channel of in a channel that you absorb information from and wherever you highlight these digital notes, you get uploaded into Readwise. And you can configure for yourself how many highlights does the app uh, share with you every day. So every morning when I wake up, the app would send me like 15 highlights every day. And this is from contents I've read last year, five years ago, 10 years ago. And it's so impactful to read something that I've highlighted and felt that, hey, this would be super useful for me from a book that I read a few years ago. And I've, I'm, I've started making it as um, a routine to look at the 15 highlights that Readwise sends me like every day. And not just for this specific book, um, but also for all the books that I'm reading. So I highly recommend everyone to leverage an app like this so that you can frequently be reminded of things that you want to remind yourself when you're reading a book. But this specific book, um, I have 
some tidbits here printed out and put right in front of me in my office about the art structure and about the structure of problem solution benefit, which is something that we very often use in our day-to-day -day life. You talk about the problem, you talk about the solution, but we seldom talk about what is the benefit of that solution. And I have it right here, PSD, PSB, problem solution benefit. Um, so I have like four or five structures right in front of me. Um, I don't think I need this for too long. It's more about making it as part of my day-to-day -day communication. And once it becomes part of it, it's just part of it always. So just to remind me for the first 30 days or three months, I have those things right in front of me that I look at it when I'm talking to a team, when I'm talking to a company, or when I'm having an impromptu conversation with someone where I want to follow a structure. I think this is quite helpful. That's uh, that's actually, uh, that's very useful. And uh, thanks for sharing about uh, the Readwise app as well. I think that was, uh, uh, that was like very, uh, I think in this explosion of information age, you need something like that to constantly remind yourself and also constantly go back. I think that, that tidbit was very useful. And the other takeaway, right? Like I think all of us, from the previous uh, or non-computer era have this habit of writing. So I, I am very similar in that. So if I listen to something or if I'm reading something, I need to take a physical book, pen and paper and write it down in yeah. order for it to imprint in my brain. So I still do that. And I've, I've used digital notes and stuff, but I still, <laughs> if I really want something impactful, I write it down a couple of times actually. Oh, that is amazing. Yeah, Probably I should consider adopting that as well. So um, when you write down, like, do you be, are you very concise with your thoughts or are you elaborate? Like, how do you make the best use of the no, time the, so that you... The main thing which I typically write down is the two or three words which I which stand out or that most impactful Got sentence, you. which I really like from that book. Uh, fr from the book or whatever I'm reading and that that really helps me to think about it uh, right so it's like uh, and if you write it down I think the backstory also you kind of remember it's like what led to that particular statement I do that for even fiction novels and non-fiction because wow. yeah, fiction is something which uh, I think I read somewhere it's like if you want to learn or if you want to improve your empathy in the world read fiction right? Mm -hmm. You are not going to have 10,000 lives. You're not going to be in different situations. If you read fiction, you actually will build empathy. You will imagine yourself in the, sh in the shoes of someone else. So uh, for me as an avid reader, that would be my recommendation. It's like always have a fiction and a non-fiction book going together. So that's that's what I actually do. So yeah. That is a brilliant piece of advice, Arti. One of my mentors, I'm a very avid nonfiction reader. I have hardly read any fiction books, but one of my mentors always tell me, at least for every five nonfiction books, I have to pair it with a fiction book. Even better if you have one fiction and nonfiction going um, simultaneously, so that depending on your mood, depending on the environment, you can pick either a fiction or a nonfiction. Yeah, yeah. So that's that is my... Uh, I've shared this with almost all my mentors or uh, people who I mentor as well as like, uh, try to read fiction uh, it it is uh, it gives you perspective in different situations and sometimes mm -hmm. you can even uh, say if you're reading something like communication or something like a, a business book or something like that then you can you can try to say okay if I were the author how could I reframe this so that's again another thing which which you can uh, try to use so yeah cool. thank you Arti that's a great takeaway for me from today's conversation <laughs>
thank you lakshmi i think it was an amazing discussion both from your insights and also from the book uh, you know we are all trying to find our voice where it matters most and when it matters most i think this book guides you with simple tools and frameworks in order to think faster and talk smarter i really appreciate your time and uh, you know thank you for uh, making the time for our listeners with your shared anecdotes as well thank you ati thanks for having having you having me on the podcast sure thank you until next time this is your host aarti vijaya raghavan from 10x growth strategies podcast uh, for the listeners please read the book think faster and talk smarter so that you can start talking smarter from tomorrow bye